Well, hey, everybody. So great to see you. Whether you're here in the room or joining us online, I'm thrilled to have you along for the ride. Uh, we're in the third week of a series we've called Repairing Relationships. And as I've said each week at the beginning of these talks, I think this is some of the most practical, helpful material that we've ever explored. And a whole bunch of you have reached out over email and said, man, thank you for this. And then there's this other question that you have, um, like, what do we do when we don't know what to do and we've done everything we can do? And I always tell you, if, and if you don't know this and you're thinking the same thing, come back next week. That's what we're talking about next week. So, um, you know, and, and if you haven't been with us so far in this series, I think this material is so practical. I want to take a minute and sort of catch you up on where we've been because these talks kind of build on one another. Uh, so we began this series two weeks ago by asking a really intense personal question. We dove deep fast. And here was that question. Uh, who hurt you? Like who comes to mind when you see this question? Uh, maybe it's a spouse or an ex-spouse, maybe it's a parent, or maybe it's a child, or maybe it's a relative, or maybe it's a coach, or maybe it's a friend. It's like we all can point to someone who hurt us and left us with some pretty significant emotional scars. But, but here's some good news. I'm actually convinced that there's hope in even the most broken relationships, that they can be repaired. And, and if they can't be repaired, I also believe that you can have peace about a relationship even without peace in that relationship. And that's a really big deal. Okay, so in week one of the series, uh, we explored what's often the first practical step to repairing broken relationships. It's something social scientists call empathy. Empathy is essentially the act of considering the other person's perspective. It's when we think about what it feels like to be that other person in the context of our broken relationship. And I'm telling you, when you take the long walk of empathy, and sometimes it's a really long walk, uh, when, when you're able to set someone's behavior in the context of their life and their experiences, what they did will make sense to you. Even if you still don't like it, you can understand it. And honestly, that's why empathy can be so incredibly powerful. And that's why it's often the first step in moving a relationship towards peace. So that's where we were in week one. Uh, then last week, we explored what's often the second practical step in repairing broken relationships. We talked about the F word, remember? Forgiveness. <laughs> And we, as we said, you know, this is often the thing we most need to do and the thing we least want to do, at least on first blush. But it's something we really do need to pursue if we're going to come to peace with our challenging relationships. So that was week two. So to get us going with our conversation today, I actually want to let you know about a book that I read last summer in preparation for a conversation with some other pastors about racism and the church. Uh, the book is called The Best of Enemies, and it's actually been made a movie on Netflix. You can check it out. I haven't seen the movie, but the book's great. Uh, but reading it was one of those things that sort of sparked this series for me. Uh, the book documents the restoration of an unimaginably complicated relationship between a man named Claiborne Ellis and a woman named Anne Atwater. Uh, during the 1960s, they lived very near one another in the city of Durham, North Carolina, uh, Mr. Ellis at the time was the local leader of the Ku Klux Klan, and Miss Atwater was a civil rights activist. So you can imagine their relationship was a touch complicated, right? Uh, actually, they, they would say in the book that they hated one another, not only by reputation, but, but personally, there was a lot of animosity going both ways. 
Well, then you fast forward to the year 2005, and on his deathbed, Mr. Ellis asked Miss Atwater to give the eulogy at his funeral. Like somehow, against all odds, they had become good friends. And in fact, Mr. Ellis' daughter recalls in the book that, that shortly before her father's funeral, Miss Atwater was seated in the front row when a funeral attendant approached her and asked her if she was attending the right funeral. And she responded that she was exactly where she was supposed to be. And then the attendant went on to say, but this is the funeral of Mr. Ellis. And uh, I don't know if you saw on the sign, but this is like a family-only service. And she responded, I know. And so the funeral attendant, uh, kind of confused and not to be deterred, looked at her and said, well, then may I respectfully ask how you're related to Mr. Ellis? And she responded, he was my brother. That was the nature of the relationship that they had developed. And we look at a story like that and we think, man, it's amazing and it's beautiful and it's inspiring. I mean, I mean, people who overcome that level of suffocating relational brokenness give us a little bit of hope. We think, man, if it's possible for someone like that, then, then maybe it's possible in my impossible, profoundly broken relationships. Like, maybe. <laughs> Okay, so now, um, to be fair, the story of Claiborne Ellis and Ann Atwater raises a fascinating question, and it's an incredibly important question, namely, how in the world did they manage to heal their relationship? How do you go from that level of hatred and anger and animosity to, to a scene where she would say, you know, he was my, my brother? What did they do? What was their secret? Well, that's the majority of what the book explores. The, the process of restoration for them began in the year 1971, uh, when the North Carolina courts ordered that all public schools in the state had to integrate racially. And Mr. Ellis and Ms. Atwater found themselves invited onto a committee that met for 10 days, during which time they were forced to listen to each other. And, and during that time, they both managed to reluctantly at first take the long walk of empathy and began to consider things from the other person's perspective. And consequently, they were able to begin to sift through some of the lies that they had unintentionally or intentionally believed about one another. And eventually, over time, they built a relationship that then developed into a lifelong friendship. That was their secret. But, but if we're honest, you know why that story represents a bit of a problem for us in our broken relationships. And I thought about this a lot this week, and here's what I think. We don't have a court forcing us to sit down and have a critical conversation with the people who hurt us, right? And maybe you do. If you do, we should talk afterwards. But most of us don't, right? In fact, if we're honest, many of us have gotten really good at avoiding our tough relationships. Like we see them in the grocery store and we go the other way. And we do this even though we are definitely not at peace in those relationships. But, but here's the thing. If you're here this morning and you're a follower of Jesus, and, and many, many of us are, and if you're not and you're here with us, we're just thrilled and honored that, that you're joining us for this conversation. But if you're here, and you're, so if you're not a follower of Jesus, by the way, you can totally discount the rest of the talk. Just think about what we have to do. But if you are a follower of Jesus, you need to know that you really can't follow Jesus and avoid your, your broken relationships because Jesus wants his followers, to pursue peace. Seriously, his instructions to that end are recorded for us in one of the accounts of Jesus' life written by a man named Matthew, who was one of his first followers. 
And before I, before I show you what Jesus told his followers to do when they found themselves in a broken relationship, I wanted to have a little fun and show you a few examples of what he didn't tell them to do in their broken relationships. So what I'm about to show you, there's some slides, they look like they're from the Bible, they're not, just the first part, and you'll see what I mean in a second. So the first thing Jesus didn't say was this. If your brother or sister sins against you, share it as a prayer request in your small group. <laughs> right? This is not in the Bible. Right. If you spend any time in church, though, you know exactly what this is like. You've probably been in a small group with someone, and at the end of your time studying the Bible, you take some time to pray for one another, and you know, how can we pray? And someone's cat needs prayer or whatever. And then, and then someone said something like this, like, you know, we really need to pray for my boyfriend, John. He had knee surgery a few months ago, and during his recovery, he became horrifically addicted to Netflix. And now he's not paying nearly enough attention to me. And I mean, I, I don't have the heart to say anything to him, but I just feel like we need to pray for him and his, his, his addiction. And you've sat there in the room when someone shared something like that, and it was awkward. And you found yourself thinking, um, we can totally pray for him. We will. But why haven't you talked to him about this? I mean, this, this is a really critical and necessary step if your relationship is going to survive. And that's, that's why... Sharing relational brokenness as a prayer request is not the first thing that Jesus suggests that we do when someone sins against us. Okay, so here's something else he doesn't say. If your brother or sister sins against you, post about it on social media. And I know what you're thinking. They hadn't invented social media. But Jesus still wouldn't have said that, right? But have you ever seen someone do this? Like someone posts something that can only be described as like hashtag oversharing. You with me on this? I remember a few years back, I'm just kind of scrolling through my feed, and uh, I noticed a friend of mine had posted a mugshot of one of their family members shortly after they had been arrested for driving under the influence. So, of course, I stopped scrolling, and I read the caption, and it said this, we really need to be praying for my brother's family. <laughs> They're experiencing a challenging season right now. And I remember thinking, who does this? And why are they my friend, right? And then I remember thinking, oh, wait, yeah, Christians, some of us do this, and we need to stop. It's really weird and not helpful, right? And it's not what Jesus instructs his followers to do in times of relational brokenness. Okay, so one more just for fun. Um, Jesus also doesn't say, if your brother or sister sins against you, eat all of the ice cream you want, because only Ben and Jerry truly understand your pain. And I brought a picture. Check this out. There it eat away your feelings. I love it, right? I mean, this is just not healthy, right? I mean, all for Ben and Jerry's in the proper situation and portion size, but it's not healthy, right? I mean, no medical professional would recommend that we do this, and it's definitely not what Jesus told his followers to do when they found themselves with broken relationships. Here's what he really says. If your brother or sister sins against you, go and show him his fault just between the two of you. So in this situation, someone has sinned against you. So you're kind of the victim. You say, Jesus, what do I do when, when they did this and it hurt me? He says, you need to go and show him, show her their fault. But then this is the key, just between the two of you. And if we're honest, if I'm honest, this totally sounds like something Jesus would say to do because we don't want to do it, right? It's not natural. He's pointing us to a better way. I, I mean, I'd always rather talk about someone who hurt me than to talk to the person who hurt me, right? I'd rather talk about them than, than to them. I'd much rather tell my friends because my friends will agree with me, 
right? They're like, oh, I can't believe they did that to you. They're such a horrible person. You're like, yeah, they, they totally are, yeah? But here's the thing. If I'm honest, talking to my friends about my hurt doesn't help heal my broken relationship. It just affirms my hurt. And, and that's why I think Jesus tells his followers, listen, when you are hurt by someone, go and have a critical conversation with them just between the two of you. In other words, prioritize the restoration of relationship by prioritizing a critical conversation with the person with whom you have tension and keep it just between the two of you. So that's the first thing that, that Jesus instructs his followers, many of us, when it comes to our relational tensions. Uh, but Jesus also says something else about relational brokenness midway through his most famous block of teaching, the Sermon on the Mount. And, and in the Sermon on the Mount, he sort of deals with the other side. So he just told us what to happen, what we should supposed to do when we're the victim, but what happens if, if we've hurt someone else? So midway through the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus sort of gets into this epic discussion about the dangers of allowing anger to fester in our relationships. He's a different, different way to describing relational brokenness. And in fact, he would say that repairing relational brokenness is such a big deal that at one point Jesus looks at his followers, and they were all Jewish at the time, and here's what he says to them. He says, if you are offering your gift at the altar. And just pause for a second. He's like, what's the altar? So if he would say to these Jewish people, listen, if you've traveled to the Jewish temple in the city of Jerusalem in order to do business with God, and if you brought a sacrifice with you to offer to God on the altar in front of the temple in order to pay for your sins, and you're standing there, he goes on, and you there remember that your brother or sister has something against you. Like you did something to them. Or they think you did something to them. But you're sideways with a brother or sister. He says if you're at the altar to do business with God, suddenly it dawns on you that someone is angry with you for something you did. Here's what he tells them to do. He says leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to them. And then come and offer your gift. And we read this like thousands of years removed from its original conscience, and we go, okay, that's, you know, just shift your priorities. I got it, Jesus, no problem. But, but that, you know, we don't catch how impactful Jesus' words would have been in the first century. But, but every Jewish person that was listening to Jesus when he first said this would have like gasped. The, the thought was ridiculous. It's like, Jesus, you, you want us to leave the gift that we brought God to pay for our sins at the altar and go to deal with a broken relationship with another human being first? I mean, isn't our relationship with God more important than our relationship with, with, with somebody who, who we hurt? It's like that you can't seriously be saying that the relationship with people needs to take priority over our religious obligations. And if they had asked Jesus to clarify, he would have looked back at them and said, no, that's exactly what I'm saying. It's that big a deal. Before you make things right with God, you need to make things right with other people. Whether you did something to them or they did something to you, it really doesn't matter who's wrong. And you don't have to take the time to assess blame or diagnose the situation or even pray about it. You just need to go, and, and this next word is huge, and try to make things right. It's like what Paul says, we studied this in week one, if it is possible, as much as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Because Jesus says, that's what it means to live life as one of my followers. In so much as it's up to you, 
you need to live at peace with everyone. Or, or we might say it this way. Jesus would look at his followers and say, okay, when, you are, when you've wronged someone else, you need to take the first step. And when you've been wronged by someone else, you need to take the first step. You're like, no, 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 no. I want them to take the first step. Jesus would say, yeah, that's great, but they might not. And they might not even be able to. So you take the first step. Okay. So now I am well aware that some of you have a totally valid objection to all this, right? And I'm going to save you the email. It's going to be great, okay? Um, you're, you're thinking, okay, I get this. It makes sense. It very, feels very Jesus-y, resonates the whole, I get it. I'm challenged. But you're like, in, in most of my relationships, I could totally do this. But there's this one relationship, and it's when, when you put up the who hurt me question, that was what I thought of, this, this one individual. But I have one individual in my life who literally has a pattern of hurting me. Like, it's almost like they've made a sport out of it. Like, it's like again and again and again and again. And I'm in this pattern of like extending grace and forgiveness and then getting whacked again. And, 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 and I'm just, I'm tired. I want to honor Jesus, but what do I do? What do I do? And again, if, if you've tried to talk to someone in your life over and over and over again, only to be hurt over and over and over again, um, you know, and you're like, what do we do with that? That's, again, that's next week. So don't, don't miss next week. We're <laughs> See what I did there? We're going to need more chairs next week. No. Because next week, we're going to talk about when it's both appropriate and wise and even God-honoring to set up boundaries in your life. I'm even quoting from a book called Boundaries. So there you go, right? Um, and so again, if that's you, please don't miss that talk. And if you're on vacation or at your cottage, we'll open it up. You can tune in online or on demand and we'll be here for you. But, um, but I'm telling you, like, in, in, that's in those situations. But in like every other case of relational breakdown, whether you're to blame or not, Jesus would say to you, you need to go and try to make things right. And okay, if, you're, if you've come this far with me, you may have another question and it goes like this. Okay, practically, like, okay, I'm going to go have a critical conversation. How do I start? What do I lead with? What, how should I frame this? What should my expectations be like? Where, what, 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 any tips? And yeah, I've been thinking about this a lot. And as I see it, there's two different scenarios depending on who's to blame for your original dysfunction. So if you're saying, okay, where do I start? A couple different scenarios. Um, here's what I mean. If you're the one who has done the wrong and, and you know it, then you can begin to try to make things right by confessing you're wrong. In other words, you need to tell the person who you hurt what specifically you did that was wrong. Verbalize it to them. And to be clear, this is very different than telling someone that you're sorry if you offended them. You know that trick? Yeah. You shouldn't be so sensitive, but in case I hurt you, right? Yeah. Totally done that myself, right? Yeah. This is a very different thing. Um, but what you need to do is you need to go to them and say, listen, I wronged you and I am so so sorry. I take full responsibility for my wrongdoing. I'm not going to make any excuses for my behavior. And then I, I'm, I just want to let you know I have a plan um, that I'd love to share with you about how I want to do better moving forward. And so that's what we need to do when we've sort of caused the relational breakdown. But in those cases when we're the victim of someone else's sin, and maybe that's you, and, and you've been waiting a long time for them to come to you, and it hasn't come yet, and you're not sure it's ever going to happen. Like, what do you do there? And you, okay, Jesus would say, you go to them, and okay, but what... what what do I do when I go to them? And I think, you know, Jesus would say to you, okay, you need to move towards them, to that person who hurt you, and you need to tell them that you forgive them. Even if they are not aware that they've hurt you. The gift to say, you know, I don't know if, you, if, I don't know if you're aware of this, but I really was hurt by you years ago, and I've been carrying it with me, and I've been doing some work on my own heart, and I just want to let you know 
Um, I, I forgive you. And they might even say in that moment, I'm so sorry, I had no idea. Or they might just, you know, cross their arms and look at you sternly. I don't know, right? But just to look to someone and give them the gift to say, listen, um, I'm going to set you free from the relational debt that you incurred, whether you realize it or not, because I was hurt. And, um, and, and if you want a little bit more about that, we talked about forgiveness last week, and, and you can check it out on the website if you'd like a little bit more. But um, So just two scenarios, two places to start, um, either uh, you know, forgiveness or basically confession. That's where we'd start. But um, as I thought about this this week, I think you know, the hardest part of all of this um, is that it takes us in a direction that doesn't come naturally to us. And, and this is actually our big idea for today. Um, but here's the observation. Repairing a relationship, a broken relationship, requires the skill of turning a confrontation into a conversation. And I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but in confrontations, we human beings have a tendency to get super defensive. Is it just me? Right? Someone comes at us with strong words of accusation, and we immediately sort of armor up and draw our sword, and we're ready to fight. And it's like that when you do that, nothing ever gets fixed. So if we're going to have a critical conversation that is successful with someone, it can't present itself as a confrontation. And that's actually a really good thing because if we're honest, most of us absolutely hate confrontation anyway, right? It's like confrontation is so incredibly emotionally expensive. But see, a conversation is something that we, that we love to do and we should do. Because honestly, in the long run, it's much more emotionally expensive not to have the critical conversation than to have the critical conversation. And, and here's why. Like, if you, if, if you avoid the critical conversation, you miss out on the acute emotional pain of having a difficult interaction, but you have to carry the chronic pain of a broken relationship with you. That's like, you know, something that happened to you years ago, and when you, you lie awake in bed at night and, and sort of open your mind and just let it wander, and that's where it goes. Like, I can't believe they did that to me. I can't believe he did that to me. I can't believe she did that to me. I can't believe they did that to me. It's like, that's a, there, there's an emotional cost to carrying it. And so if your first impulse is, man, I don't do this well. I don't like confrontation. I'm okay with conversation, but I'm not sure I can do it with them without it becoming a confrontation. And if that's what you're feeling, just count the cost. Because it is hard emotionally for a lot of us to have a critical conversation, but it's also incredibly costly not to. It's like, and even you may have a situation in your past where you've experienced the power of the critical conversation. I mean, there may have been a time when you had the conversation that you needed to have. And after you did, you were so thankful that you did. It's like you felt free. And the relationship was... Um, it was perfect. No, it wasn't perfect. It was better. It was moving in the right direction. It had the potential to heal. And to me, that is the power of critical conversations. And so now what I want to do is, we, um, is kind of we come in for a landing today. I want to summarize what we've learned so far by making four brief suggestions. So if you're a note taker or if you're watching online and you want to take pictures of the screens, this is great. Um, great stuff to review. But the first observation suggestion goes like this. Go to the person with whom you have conflict as soon as possible. And honestly, my guess is for some of us, um, we probably need to reach out to some, the person who hurt us like today, like before the sun goes down today, we need to start that, that process because it's costing us emotional energy every single day that we're alive. And the longer we wait, the more it will cost us. So we need to go as soon as possible and try to make things right. That's the, that's the first reminder. 
Uh, the second reminder goes like this. When you have conflict, go to the person directly. And again, we talked about this, but uh, talk to them, don't talk about them. And, and if I'm honest, um, like when I have a broken relationship, the first person I want to talk to is not the person with whom I am relationally dysfunctional. And a bunch of us would probably agree. Like if you're like most of us, you want to tell anyone who will listen, but sometimes the last person that we want to tell is the person with whom we have brokenness. And it's easier to tell other people and get them on our side. It makes us feel better about our dysfunction. But, but if we would take the conversation to the person with whom we have the tension, there's a chance that the relationship might actually improve, that the relationship might actually get stronger. So go directly to the person who hurt you and keep it just between the two of you. Um, and actually, you may even confess to the person that everything in you wanted to tell everyone else what happened, but you knew that the best way to handle the situation and to respect them was to talk to them directly. Um, and we, you don't want to spread the relational brokenness to people who are uninvolved with the breakdown. So that's the second reminder. Go to the person directly. Uh, the third reminder goes like this. Whether you're responsible for the relational breakdown or not, go with humility. And, and perhaps you need to say something like, um, I was wrong. I'm sorry. I want to do better. Or maybe you need to say something like, you know, I, I need to talk to you about what happened. Like, you hurt me, and I want to see if we can repair what's been broken. So it's not just the words you use. It's like the posture with which you enter the conversation. It's, it's your approach. Like approach makes all the difference. And humility would dictate that you go into the conversation with an open mind, and you ask questions, and then you really listen to the other person. A humble posture also keeps the person with whom you're struggling from getting defensive. And that's a really good thing, as I mentioned. Like, in my experience, when someone gets defensive during a conversation, the conversation is over. Like, you can keep talking, but, but they can't listen anymore. So humility keeps people from getting defensive. And, and again, then you activate all sorts of wonderful potential in the conversation. So that's the third observation. Go with humility. The final observation goes like this. When you finally gather up the courage to have the conversation that you know you need to have, make sure that you say the last 10%. And you're like, what in the world is the last 10%, right? And to answer that question, I will quote from the great Hebrew poet, John Mayer, okay? <laughs> when you have that conversation that you know you need to have, make sure that you say what you need to say, right? Can have Stefan come out and sing it again. He did a great job, right? Say what you need to say. Sometimes emotionally charged environments um, that, that, that these conversations have to happen in keep us from saying what we came to say. And, and, but but when, we, when that happens, it's like we, we can leave the conversation, but we feel like unsatisfied because we didn't really put it all out there. And the broken relationship that we desired to repair, that we took a risk to repair, is still broken. So like when you have a critical conversation, say the awkward thing that you need to say. That's number four. Okay, so now here's some really good news. When it comes to your peace with a relationship, it really doesn't matter how the person on the other side of a critical conversation responds. Like if they fold their arms and just sort of want nothing to do with you in that moment, you still walk away from that conversation 
Um, you, you still walk away having said what you need to say and having done everything that you couldn't do in order to try to come to peace with the relationship. And that's that path that we've talked about throughout this series where you come to peace with the relationship even if you can't come to peace in that relationship. So step one, take the walk of empathy. Step two, forgiveness. Step three, have a critical conversation. And then next week, step four, we're going to talk all about boundaries. And I know what a few of you are thinking, that's going to be my favorite one. Okay, that's good. That's good. Why don't don't you stand and I'll close our time together in prayer. Once again this week, um, if you'd like to talk to someone after the service, we'll have some volunteers under the screen uh, that would love to just hear what's going on in your life and to pray with you. Um, But for the rest of us, let let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for preserving the teachings of your son. Thank you for the blistering clarity that they bring into this life which can so often be complicated. I pray for everyone in this room who has a name in mind when the question who hurt you hit the screens. I pray that by your spirit you would begin to stir up within them courage and hope that even in the most broken relationship there are some steps that they can take to pursue peace and to pursue healing. I pray that all throughout our community, relationships, complicated relationships, impossible relationships, would heal, it would get just a little bit better, and that we would not need to carry around the emotional weight of that broken relationship in the same sort of way. But for today, we just say thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his death on the cross, his resurrection, and the invitation to follow him and to learn a new way to be a human on this earth. We will forever be grateful. It is in the name of Jesus that we pray. Everyone said, amen. Grace and peace to you, friends. We'll see you next week for part four.